This is Mishmash, a weekly conversation where we try to unjumble an important and sometimes under-the-radar statewide issue that affects you. I'm Shana Roth. A toss-up primary for the GOP candidate for governor has been decided. An incumbent won't be on the November ballot. There's a lot to unpack about Tuesday's primary. But a big part of it all was the money that was spent. And with me to talk about who spent what and who spent too much is Simon Schuster, political reporter for MLive and former executive director of the Michigan Campaign Finance Network. Simon, welcome to Mishmash. Thanks so much for having me, Shana. Happy to be on. So let's start with the big spenders. Democrats really didn't have that many major contested primaries. Obviously, Governor Gretchen Whitmer ran unopposed, but you did have incumbent Rashida Tlaib winning her primary for the 12th district, and you had Haley Stevens actually unseating Andy Levin. Those was two incumbents battling it out for who could run the newly redistrict 11th district. And of course, Republicans had a governor position where Tudor Dixon came out on top, and incumbent Representative Peter Meyer actually lost the third congressional district slot to Trump backed John Gibbs. So, Simon, who spent the most on these races and was it worth it? When you look at the uh, congressional level, the single largest spender actually wasn't a campaign at all. It was the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. They spent millions and millions on uh, races in three different districts, including uh, looking to unseat Andy Levin, uh, Rashida Tlaib, and uh, prevent the uh, election of Shreed Thanadar in the 13th. They were sort of uh, one for three here and uh, succeeded in uh, re-electing Haley Stevens. They were not as successful in backing Janice Winfrey in the uh, 12th district and uh, backing Adam Ollier in the 13th. Uh, this was sort of a redemption shot for Three Thanadar because he had spent about $10 million of his personal fortune in 2018 running for governor. But this time around, uh, I think about the, the $8 million that he poured into his campaign account in the 13th uh, actually allowed him to carry the day sort of running as the progressive champion in that race. There was some talk, as we discussed on this show previously, of Democrats putting money toward Republican races or even voting Republican. The Democratic Party actually put $400,000 toward John Gibbs to help him beat Peter Meyer. Gibbs is a very far-right candidate. He promotes baseless conspiracy theories, including that the 2020 election was stolen, whereas Meyer, still very Republican, but he did vote to impeach Trump. So what happened here and was it a smart move? We're in cynical political times, right? And so when you see uh, an ad that says John Gibbs is too conservative uh, for West Michigan from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. You know, if you're uh, politically naive, you can come forward and say, oh, you know, this is just a straightforward advertisement. But given the times that we live in, Democrats really saw this as an ad that was sort of pushing Trumpian voters to uh, encourage them to come out, support Gibbs and come out to vote for him and attempt to oust Peter Meyer because they believe that uh, Hillary Skolton, the Democrat in that race, is going to have a better fighting chance against Gibbs. And so uh, Democrats themselves sort of decried this move. And so it's really going to be interesting to see if this, uh, you know, pays dividends for Democrats. Uh, You know, Meyer is a moderate Republican. He's the one who uh, voted in favor of codifying gay marriage. And of course, as you said, the impeachment of President Donald Trump. And so uh, whether this actually works out is really an open question. And we'll see. I was in general just very surprised to see Peter Meyer lose in Meyer town. He probably has better name recognition than almost anybody else in Western Michigan and maybe across the state because you have Meyer grocery stores all over the place. Uh, For him to be unseated after one term, to me, was quite shocking. 
Right. And, you know, I think that this really shows the state of the Republican Party where we're at in 2022, whereas if, uh, you know, calling someone an elite, showing that they're successful or come from a family of wealth, it could be a really big negative and sort of uh, any candidate has to sort of distance themselves from that kind of image. You look at Kevin Rinke, for example, that's a man who uh, is very, very wealthy and he was appearing, you know, driving a Pontiac GTO and in leather jackets. And so uh, I think Meyer, that was a difficulty for him that maybe he wasn't so successful in overcoming. Yeah. Whereas maybe like 10 years ago, probably would have helped him more so than it hurt him. Oh, certainly. I mean, in 2012, we had Mitt Romney as the uh, Republican president. And uh, I mean, but when you look at Donald Trump's presidency, he was elected, you know, sort of saying that he was going to go after the elites and establishment politicians, uh, even though he himself is, you know, very wealthy. So let's dig into the rest of this election. What in your mind is the biggest takeaway from Tuesday? Uh, You know, I think that really when you look at the gubernatorial field and Tudor Dixon's victory here, this is... um, Another example of the Michigan Republican Party, which has spent the last decade or so sort of dealing with this tension between uh, grassroots movements, uh, insurgent outsiders in the party and traditional uh, power brokers and establishment figures. And this was sort of uh, another example of the party successfully marrying these two movements and coming together around a candidate that can uh, sort of, they believe, bring this party together as well as possible. And I think a lot of this came from this 11th hour endorsement uh, from Donald Trump in Tudor Dixon. And when you uh, see her get this endorsement, while she was already starting to maintain a lead in this race, it really pulled her away from her competition. She received twice as many votes as her next closest competitor, Kevin Rinke. She got about 41% of the vote to Rinke's 21 or so. And so, uh, you know, her ability to sort of clinch this nomination in the, in the very uh, final hours, I think really speaks to uh, the Republican Party maintaining uh, sort of this ability to unify their movements and move past this acrimoniousness. Yeah, I mean, Tudor Dixon does seem to be this sort of in-person symbol of unity when you look at her endorsements. I mean, she got Trump and she got DeVos, which is just this, you know, old moneyed family who has been supportive of the Republican Party for so long really is the establishment for her to get both of those endorsements and for people to then say, I'm okay with that. I mean, that makes her really dangerous for Governor Gretchen Whitmer seeking a second term. Right. And I think that this really shows how important winning is uh, just to everyone in our political uh, sphere. Um, You know, obviously, I think the record shows that the DeVos family personally finds Trump, especially his actions on January 6th, distasteful, his rejection of democratic norms in that sense. But the fact that there was a handwritten letter saying that, hey, we need to come together and to defeat Gretchen Whitmer, and we're willing to sort of put these differences aside to make sure that that happens. Um, I think that that shows on all levels that really electoral outcomes are what drive our politics these days for better or worse. Staying on Tudor Dixon and Governor Gretchen Whitmer for a minute. I mean, this is going to be a long and likely very expensive road to the governor's office. Whitmer has a war chest that she has been adding to for years. Tudor has Trump and all of his supporters. She has the DeVos family, which, as we've said, is a very wealthy family. And you had a piece in MLive titled, For Tudor Dixon, the path to victory for Michigan governor could rest on public opinion and big spending. Can you talk to us about that piece? Yeah, so I think it's important to note that 2018 was the most expensive gubernatorial election in Michigan's history. We saw more than $93 million in spending, and I anticipate that we're going to see even more this time around. Uh, I think really sort of what's important to note here is that both of these candidates are going to pivot towards the center. Uh, There's a crucial swath of independent voters that are going to decide this election. 
And both of their opponents are going to be trying to push them towards the fringes. We saw Governor Whitmer, you know, she was governor in a time of enormous consequence in terms of policy decisions, the COVID-19 pandemic, and then also, you know, obviously our declining infrastructure and the economic uncertainty we're currently facing. These are the things that uh, Dixon is going to want to concentrate on. And if these are, this is the message that she wants to highlight, attacking uh, Governor Whitmer's uh, record and showing that she's the more economically viable candidate, that she will do more and have better policy for business. Uh, Whitmer, on the other hand, she and her campaign team have watched Dixon through this primary season really have to fend off attacks from her right, uh, candidates who are more conservative and have more extreme positions than she does on quite a few issues. So she's going to try to prevent her from moving towards the center on some of these issues, especially in regards to her uh, belief in the outcome of the election in 2020, her beliefs on abortion. And so money is so important because it allows you to say, hey, the candidate is saying one thing, but think about this. Here's another thing in another position she's taken in the past, and here's how we characterize her record. And this is how uh, you know we can sort of cast the portrait of her instead. And so uh, Dixon has a lot of financial ground to make up. And unless she can sort of you know attract donors that are willing to pour millions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars into this race, uh, she's going to have a real uphill battle. Let's talk about the Republican Party unity. We kind of touched on it a little bit with Tudor Dixon sort of unifying the party a little bit. But on the other hand, you have candidates who in their primaries are refusing to concede, who are claiming that the election, even this primary, was was stolen from them and, and further perpetrating these these lies that the election system is not secure and are just refusing to to take their losses and go home. Where do you think the the Republican Party stands with with unity? And are these these candidates refusing to concede? Are they problematic or are they just kind of outliers that will will go away eventually? Right. So I think Ryan Kelly, for the most part, and his refusal to concede the election thus far is more or less an outlier here. Uh, I think, again, you know, winning is so important electoral outcomes that people are willing to sort of look past these issues. I mean, I think Matt DiPerno is sort of the chief example of this. This is a guy who achieved political prominence and in many ways rode to, uh, you know, becoming to become the uh, Republican Party's nominee for attorney general by espousing uh, uh, unfounded claims of election fraud. And so his ability to sort of shift away from that, which he said he wants to, you know, move past talking about this uh, is huge. I mean, this is the issue for individuals that have sort of gotten behind DiPerno. So he has to, he recognizes the writing on the wall. This is not a message that can win Republicans uh, a victory in November. So this, you're really going to see a pivot on both sides, I think, towards kitchen table issues and bringing the Republican party around that message and getting everyone on board with that is really going to be key to victory in November. And when you look at the slate of candidates, Everyone is behind that. I think that the one ex- uh, perhaps exception to that is uh, Christina Caramo. Uh, the, the nominee for secretary of state is continuing to espouse uh, theories of election fraud. And we'll see how far that goes towards the general election season. How concerned do you think that city clerks and current election officials should be about further lies that the election is stolen when it comes to the 2022 election? Are we going to see a repeat of what happened in 2020? Or do you think that people are starting to realize that we need to accept the the outcomes? Right. I mean, so I think it's it's important. I would say that the outcome of the, this November election is not predetermined. You know, there's not a clear enough leader here to say that one person is certainly getting elected over the other. And from that perspective, uh, I'd say Bowsing claims of election fraud is a 
loser's approach. If you get elected in November, you're not going to say the outcome of this election is illegitimate, right? And so, um, and I also think that Democrats, uh, you know, there's no chance that they're going to say the election is illegitimate because they've spent two years talking about the the how elections in uh, Michigan and the nation are free and fair. Uh, so I don't think that's necessarily a point of concern. Um, so I think a lot rests on the outcome in that regard. Um, but uh, at the same time, I don't think there's a unified enough response to really push for reform. Um, with divided government currently in Lansing, uh, there's not been the sort of change to the structure of our elections that we've seen in other states like Wisconsin, for example, where there has been significant differences in the administration and structure of our elections. Um, and so I think they have uh, a lot more to be worried about than Michigan does, per se. Let's talk about voter turnout. Absentee ballots were especially high this election. Detroit saw a 54 percent increase in absentee ballot turnout from the 2018 election. And this is just a midterm Absentee ballots have gotten easier and more readily available for use, and it's something that Democrats largely tend to take advantage of more so than Republicans. So if I'm the Republican Party, am I nervous when I see this level of turnout of absentee ballots? You know, I think uh, like the answer to any complicated question is the easy one, at least, is it depends. Um, I think that uh, Republicans are not locked in to distrust of absentee ballots if they don't want to be. Uh, and I think that this was a narrative that you heard a lot in 2020 with Donald Trump as president. But I think that there's also a recognition among Republicans that this is electorally disadvantageous for them, uh, that absentee ballots are a good way to get more people to the polls because it makes voting more convenient for individuals, uh, no matter what your background is. And so uh, by embracing absentees, uh, you can sort of drive turnout among your base. The question is, is that more beneficial for the Democratic base than it is for Republicans? And so there's, I think, you know, a little bit of a calculation that could go on here. But long term, I think we're going to see a shift towards embracing this, especially if it's going to drive electoral turnout um, in a way that's advantageous for Republicans. Let's close out with the Kansas abortion decision. Voters in Kansas overwhelmingly said no to a proposal to take the right to an abortion out of their state constitution uh, in what is seen by abortion rights activists as a huge victory. We have a measure that looks like it's going to be on the ballot in November uh, to enshrine <laughs> abortion rights in our state constitution. Uh, what can we kind of learn from what happened in Kansas? And uh, can we use any of that to kind of predict what's going to happen in November? I would say that this really comes down to money and messaging for uh, abortion rights advocates and the gubernatorial candidates, because uh, both of them are going to be accused of being extreme on this issue. They're going to claim that this ballot measure allows abortion up until the day of birth. Um, I can't speak to you know the veracity of these claims. I'm not an attorney myself, and I think that there's some sort of split legal interpretations here. But at the same time, I think that really the messaging from Democrats you're going to see is that this is a question of whether abortion is going to be allowed, period, in Michigan. And uh, it, it, what we saw in Kansas is that, you know, this is a deep red state that voted 56 percent for Trump in 2020. Uh, but yet there was this one with 60 percent of the vote. Uh, it, and really, I think the hope here is that this could be a bigger driver 
uh, of turnout for Democrats moving into November. And But I think a lot of it is going to do with the amount of money that's going to be spent. I'm hearing from at least one source that he anticipates that this is going to be an $80 million issue, that there's going to be $40 million of spending on both sides, which is a, an enormous sum for a ballot measure. I mean, so both sides of this issue feel that there's an enormous amount at stake. And so I think the spending is really going to reflect that. Simon Schuster, political reporter for MLive, thank you so much for joining me here on Mishmash. Thank you, Shane. It was a pleasure.